Hello and welcome to Casting Nets Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Pastor Will Harley. I'm joined here with Pastor Dave Rudat. Pastor Rudat, why don't you say hello? Hello, everyone. All right, that is enough from Pastor Rudat today. <laughs> and uh, um, <laughs> Last week, I said I didn't have anything to say, and this week, you're just going to shut everything down and just say no more from Pastor Rudat. No like more, it. no more. But today, we, we, will, we will hear back from him in a little bit. Um, but what we have here is something that I find very exciting. It's a specialty show, um, a show that we want to, to use to give thanks to our mothers because this weekend is Mother's Day. And so we will have an opportunity to uh, to give thanks to to the mothers that God has blessed us with, not only um, now, but also the, the examples that he has blessed us with. But before we have an opportunity to do that, we do want to give our disclaimer. And the disclaimer is very simple. That is uh, just as uh, Pastor Rudat always says, two pastors rambling our thoughts um, and putting them out on the table. Uh, if you don't like what we have to say, you know, wear the big boy pants, turn us off, or uh, join the conversation and give us your opinion because we would definitely love to hear from you. Um, you can reach us at castingnetspod at gmail.com or you can reach us at uh, our local congregations. Um, if you'd like to reach me personally, you can also reach me at pastor at stjohnmaribel.com uh, and those would be uh, wonderful ways for, for you to get a hold of us and uh, we'd love to hear from you. As I said, we, uh, we do uphold the, the doctrines of the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Church, but the views and opinions that we do share aren't always the views and opinions of the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Church or the church bodies in which we are called to serve. They are the rambling thoughts of two pastors who are attempting to live their life of faith and, uh, and share that faith with others. So please enjoy the show as we have an opportunity to talk about mothers and give thanks for the wonderful blessing that they are. So you might be wondering why, if this is a Mother's Day special, why Will and I don't have moms on here to talk to you about uh, being a mother. Well, we're here to talk about biblical mothers as well, the the examples that are put before us in the Bible, uh, the good, the bad, uh, the not-so-pretty uh, moms in the Bible, not not pretty on the outside, but uh, not-so-pretty on the inside. Uh, well, and also because, you know, my mother did not want to be on a talk show. <laughs> Uh, okay, so Will and I picked uh, three moms each, and so we're going to walk through these three moms. We're going to start from the Old Testament. We'll end up in the New Testament. And so the first one on our list is Sarah. Sarah. Sarah is uh, the, the very—now, she's not the very first mother that there ever was. Um, of course, that very first mother would be—everyone uh, knows Eve, right? Um and, and she is uh, a wonderful, wonderful lady. Um, I mean, one major flaw, but— um, that was her husband's fault, and that's a different podcast for a different time. But uh, Sarah is is probably one of the mothers uh, uh, best, best noted uh, for her faith in, in Hebrews 11. Um, one of the only ladies uh, other than other than Rahab, if I do remember correctly, who is is listed as as a woman of faith there in the in the scriptures uh, in Hebrews eleven. Not that there are other other isn't other women of faith, um, but she is uh, a wonderful woman of faith. Anyway, she she is this uh, um, beautiful woman, um, name princess, right? 
Uh, beautiful, beautiful woman. Um, unfortunately, she is barren, so she is unable to have children. Um, her story is in the book of Genesis, um, and you you can really catch up with her uh, starting pretty much in, in Genesis uh, 12, uh, 11, starting, you'll, you'll be introduced to her. But really, the major part of her her life um, begins to unfold uh, when um, probably around Genesis 15, Genesis 16, where uh, we, we have an, a very aged Sarah. And um, she has been given the promise by the Lord that she would have a child and uh, that her child would, would, would carry the very promise of the Messiah. And um, not because of lack of trying or lack of desire on, on her and her husband part. Uh, uh, she's just barren. She, she can't have kids. Um, and so she tries to take matters into her own hands. And, and legally she does this. And, 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 and I would have to say legally this is a, an acceptable thing. Um, she, she looks towards the law. And, and this is going to be a, a whole point of contention that Paul will bring up, right, um, later on in the epistles where, where he talks about um, the two women in Abraham's life. And he says one is of the law, one is of the gospel, um, and the children that are born by them. Uh, but, but here's where it comes from. In Genesis 16, you know, she, she gives uh, her handmaiden, Hagar, over to uh, her husband, Abraham, to be a second wife. So, so Hagar is her handmaiden. Um, she was uh, an Egyptian who was uh, um, given to Sarah to, to sort of serve her in her household. And uh, legally, she is capable of, of, since that's her servant, she can give her handmaiden over to her husband. And her handmaiden will now be raised in status from a servant to a second wife, uh, still under the first wife, so she'd still be under Sarah um, and what Sarah would desire. But but then the child that was born from that union would become the legal child of Sarah. Okay, so so hopefully you're we're we're kind of following along what's what what the law of the land is stating. Well, this is where we start talking about Sarah as a mother because. Um, you know, Sarah's got a lot of wonderful qualities. Um, she is she is a devout wife. She is a loving wife. She is uh, she puts up with a lot of things that I don't think any lady should have put up with from her husband um, <laughs> more than once. Like like her her husband had said, you know, "This is my sister." She was taken in marriage by other people. What was that? Twice, three times, yeah, twice. Yeah. Twice. And and uh, the Lord had to prevent the consummation of those those false unions because uh, Abraham was was too much of a chicken to to stand up and say nope this is my wife, um, but what happens is is now Sarah is gotten to the point where she she wants to force I kind of view this as forcing God's hand, and uh, she she knows the promise is hers she she knows that but she can't see a way through. And so she she gives her handmaiden over to Abraham, like I said, Genesis 16, um, and her handmaiden gets pregnant. So that tells us that Abraham is able to have kids. So the the, the it's it's Sarah who is barren, right? Um, which is going to come play into the promise in a miraculous way here here real shortly. But we have this this moment where Hagar is now pregnant, and this attitude between Hagar and Sarah now changes. 
And um, this has nothing to do with Ishmael, who's going to be born. This has everything to do with the mothers, right? You have the legal mother, Sarah, who is now being looked down on by the biological mother, Hagar, who says, oh, I have no problem getting pregnant. My new husband was just fine, um, and, and I'm able to have his child. What's your problem? And there's scorn there. So it plays out where she finally um, gives birth. Hagar gives birth. Uh, well, okay, I, I skipped a little bit. She, she gets chastised by Sarah, and she runs while she's pregnant. And she, she runs into the wilderness, and the Lord confronts her and sends her back in a beautiful way and says, nope, you need to do this. You need to go back, and uh, I will protect you. I'll be with you. And so she comes back, and she gives birth to a son, and the son is Ishmael. Now, instantly, we we see what I would consider to be, and, and, and this is interesting because I, I know it's not the point of the scriptures to focus on it, but you see this um, interesting dichotomy that happens is legally Ishmael is Sarah's child, but they never have that bond. They, they never have that bond of, of a mother and a child. Um, there seems to be this wall that is placed between Sarah and Ishmael. And, and even though this was Sarah's desire, even though this was Sarah's wanting to gain a child through the legal means, which was, which was her right, she almost, I mean, it seems in Scripture like she almost ignores Ishmael. Um, as, her legal mo- as his legal mother, he, he kind of, she kind of chastises him. Um, and I think it's because of the relationship with Hagar that 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 happens. Um, but I, I find that to be one of Sarah's major downfalls um, that it has lo- lasting ramifications throughout history, that that her chastisement of Ishmael and especially doubly so after she gets pregnant uh, through mir- miraculous means in her 90s. Um, with Isaac, I think you have some disastrous results that that happen. Um, so I don't know if you have any comments as you, as uh, just on that portion, because I want to get to Sarah and and her reaction to her biological child, but but just that maybe reaction between the legal standing and 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 that you see in this. I have no reaction. I just uh, it's just it's something for us to think about uh, as far as what is the things that we. The things that God puts in front of us, uh, the people that we have in our lives. I'm just, I was thinking through this and saying, what for myself, what would be the takeaway for me looking at just just what you had talked about with Sarah uh, not uh, loving the person that's in front of her? That would be my question. Well, and and I think the takeaway is is the simple that, <clears throat> okay, so I see this as the takeaway. Um the takeaway is the responsibility. Um, whether we, whether it is by grace or by law, God gives to us um, wonderful opportunities. Sarah was given an opportunity and she failed. And it's her sinful nature. I'm, I'm not saying that it isn't. But she was given an opportunity to be responsible for this child um, and, and to treat this child as a mother should have treated a child. Um, legally, Ishmael is Sarah's child. Legally, 
mm-hmm. even though there is no biological connection to that child, and and I understand that biology creates this bond that's a little bit thicker, but but I mean, this is a um, a, a drastic shift, I think, in in my approach to Sarah. I, I think Sarah is a wonderful lady from scripture we we she's got many accolades she's she's faithful she is of faith she believes in her lord and savior and the promises of her lord and savior i think this is a weak point in her in her story because she she downplays the promise of the lord and tries to take matters into her own hands but when she does take matters into her own hands she fails to follow through and take the responsibility of taking those matters into her own hand. And I think that's the takeaway that 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 even every any family today who would decide to go through legal means and adopt a child or or is given a child through legal means, however that happens, that is a response you now have a responsibility to that child to provide for that child as if they are your own in all biological means. Um and and we don't see that in Sarah with Ishmael. Yeah, okay, that's a very good point. Just Sometimes people just uh, hone in on Sarah. Of course, we're looking at her weaknesses, but on her weaknesses of her laughing when the three visitors come to visit her, and uh, she laughs at the promise that she's going to have this miraculous son. But there's another, there's more to her weaknesses. And then if there's more to her weaknesses, there is more to God's grace uh, for Sarah that he still provides her with uh, a son, even though she is a sinner, even though that she doesn't necessarily embrace fully the the vocation of motherhood that God had placed in front of her. Well, yeah. and, and, you know, I don't want to bring this about fathers, but it also gives you an idea of the turmoil that Abraham was going through because he he now has, and, and think of Abraham in the sense of he has two responsibilities, right? He has a responsibility to his first, his first wife. He has now a responsibility to his second wife, who his first wife said you have to get into a relationship with. He has a child now. Um, who by the time Isaac comes along, this child is 13 years old. By the time Isaac is born, this child is 13 years old. So, I mean, he's had opportunity to grow with this child. And it wasn't as if God did not give Sarah opportunity to get to know Ishmael and to to fulfill that role as mother for Ishmael. Um, you see that this is a grudge. I mean, this is, this is I, I, and uh, okay, so I would go beyond grudge and I would border this is on hatred. I mean, after so many, so much time, this this is almost a hatred that she has for Hagar that boils over onto her legal child. Right, and I I don't think Sarah would be the only one that fault for that hatred. It seems like Hagar uh, dishes it just as much as she takes it, and as well as Ishmael. Uh, that's the whole reason why Hagar and Ishmael are sent away is that there's this discord between everybody. Absolutely. But I would say that, you know, you have Hagar who who loves Ishmael. And you see that when they are, I mean, when they're, when they're cast out and sent away, you know, and they're starving, she's willing to give everything she has so that Ishmael can live just for a little bit. And the Lord comes to Hagar and, and gives her these promises for Ishmael because Ishmael is part of that line of Abraham. But, but I, I, I'm focusing on, yes, you're absolutely correct. It's not just a one-sided story where, where Sarah is the one at fault and Hagar is this this immaculate uh, person who is perfect in all of her dealings. She's not by any stretch of the imagination. But the difference between uh, Ishmael, or I should say Sarah and Hagar, the difference between the two is that Sarah is, by Scripture, 
listed as a believer. Hagar isn't. Yes, we have a confession out of Hagar after the Lord comes to her and gives her a promise, but we're not told of her faith ever. We're, we're never told that, that, that Hagar is a woman of faith. We are told that Sarah is. And so good, bad, or indifferent, and I, and I understand this, good, bad, or indifferent, believers, believers are called to live at a higher bar. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry. Right. They're, 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 I agree. We expect more from them, even though they're human. I get it. Even though they are still sinful, I understand. But we, we, we expect more from them because much has been given to them for them to draw from. Yep. I would absolutely agree with everything you said. And just the fact that Sarah is among the believers at the end is also a testament to God's grace on her behalf. Um, and uh, how God was able to bring things around for Sarah toward the end, uh, that she would be listed under the heroes of faith. And I agree with that. And 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 so what happens? And and here's and so you know sometimes you might say, well, she's from an older generation, right? And it's harder for older people to 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 maybe be as loving as we would expect in our in our day and age. That is a false thing because what happens? She she does get pregnant in her nineties. She has a child. Um, the, the things blow up when, when, um, they're celebrating, um, Isaac being weaned. Um, she has such joy over Isaac. She loves Isaac. I mean, she, she dotes over Isaac. Um, Isaac is weaned at around three, maybe four. Um, so you're looking at an Ishmael who's around 16 or 17 and she takes great offense because Ishmael is mocking Isaac. And, um, she says, okay, now I'm done. I, we have the air. We have the one that I that I truly want, which tells you, you know, she she discredits the even the very legal standing that that Ishmael has to her, and she says, nope, get rid of him, and, and it really hurts Abraham. But you know how the story goes; he he's assured by the Lord, the Lord will take care of him, and he sends him off. And you have about thirty years where Isaac is able to. You have thirty years where Isaac is able to to really grow in this love that he that his mother has for him. In fact, so much so that after he dies, um, he doesn't get married for another three years after her death. So so he is into his thirties, <clears throat> and before he he gets married, um, and he's going to marry Rebecca, which is going to be be the next mother we're going to talk about. But leading up to that, interestingly enough, three years after his mother's death. He still has all of her stuff. He still, he still, because they're very nomadic. They move from place to place. He still sets up her tent. He still sets up her her room the way she kept it, um, because he he had such a high regard for his mother. So it tells you that she had the capability of being a very very wonderful mother, and the Lord blessed her appropriately. Her downfall was in her treatment of Ishmael when she was legally Ishmael's mother. Yep. that I think that wraps up Sarah. So why don't we move on to Rebecca? All right. Well, Rebecca, um, leading into Rebecca, and and uh, um, Rebecca is another wonderful lady. Uh, I, I love the story of Isaac and Rebecca because you see some of the— uh, I think you see some of the cultural trends on how these things were, were done. Um, we always sometimes think that, oh, the men made all the decisions and the women just had to do whatever. No, no, no. That Yes, the the men made some of the deals, but then they said, we got to ask her if she wants to do this. And she said, absolutely. And and beautiful, beautiful how this all works out. So um, 
Rebecca is a, a distant relation to Isaac. Um, so they go back to, to Ur and they, they, they uh, gain from the family uh, because they're believers. And so they, they draw from a pool of people that are not unbelieving. And, um, and so they come, she comes and, and, and it's a beautiful tale. Um, only time in scripture for the founding fathers, by the way, that we hear this up until, if I remember correctly, it's Daniel or David, David, where, where he loves Bathsheba. Um, you have Isaac loved Rebecca. Some beautiful words. You don't have that. Not that Abraham didn't love Sarah. We see that in his reaction and living with her. But but the words, you know, very specifically, Isaac loved Rebecca, and and so Isaac he he marries Rebecca on the spot, uh, and and to, to give such a high praise to Rebecca as a woman, uh, and and how much um, how much Isaac valued her, he brings her into his mother's tent. So she, so Rebecca now is taking over the, the matriarchal role of the family. Okay. So, so there's a beautiful relationship. Well, she is unable to have children for the longest time. And, and we see, uh, this beautiful, what I think is beautiful where, where Rebecca does not turn to the same mistake that Sarah did. Um, she, she, she doesn't even complain. It doesn't necessarily say she desires to have children, but we don't, we don't see this overarching, I have to force it. Um, and I, it's Isaac who beautifully goes to the Lord on behalf of his wife and says, um, her greatest desire is to be a mother, right? How beautiful is that? That, that not only is she content to be a wife, but her greatest desire is to be a mother, and and he prays to the Lord on behalf of his wife, and and the Lord hears her or hears him, and and she conceives, and she conceives in her womb twins, and we know that they are Esau, and they're Jacob, and she is given um, a prophecy from the Lord that the younger will uh, rule over the older, so the older will serve the younger, um, and uh, um, that changes everything for Rebecca. And I would have to say not for the best. So we have this beautiful fledgling relationship that is between um, Isaac and Rebecca, a beautiful husband and wife relationship. He loves his wife. They now have children and the first one comes out red and hairy and they name him Esau. And the next one comes out and he's smooth, right? Um, And they name him Jacob. He's a liar. (laughs) Um, and he'll grab, a heel grabber, but he ends up being a liar too. Right. And 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 instantly, instantly, and I think it's because of the prophecy, because again, again, sinful nature wants to make it a self-fulfilling prophecy instead of a God-fulfilled prophecy. She gravitates to Jacob, and she loves Jacob to the exclusion of Esau. And Isaac, equally as bad, loves Esau to the exclusion of Jacob. And so now we have favoritism being played um, and we see a mother who engages in favoritism and it destroys the family. It destroys the family on a very fundamental level um, to where the sons are pitted, are, are pitted against each other for the favor, for the favor of the, uh, of, of, of the parent. Um, and so I think, he, I think that's the malady in, in Rebecca is, is this, unmotherly characteristic of 
I both are by my biological children, and I I am favoring one over the other. Right, the lack of trust in God's promise. If God makes this promise uh, to you, it's going to happen. You don't have to manipulate things to make it happen that way. Uh, God will allow it. So there's a I see really a lack of trust. And yes, God made this promise, this prophecy about these two boys, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to take things into your own hands and manipulate things so that it happens that way, or that you have to lie in order for things to happen that way, that you have to, to commit some sort of sin in order for God's promise uh, to be fulfilled. Well, and and you saw that with Sarah, where she tried to take matters into her own hands, and you're going to see it again with Rebecca, where she tries to take matters into her own hands, because... Isaac gets old and he's he's going to pass away. And so he's going to give his blessing, you know, for the stuff of the house. And um, Rebecca just can't stand that because she knows that Isaac is going to give the blessing to Esau. Now, normally you'd and say... Not just the blessing of the stuff, let's just clarify, but the blessing of the promise of the Savior, which is right. something which is really special. Right. I should have... Yeah, and you're absolutely right. So there, it's not just the blessing of the stuff that... that, that that Isaac had, but it's the the blessing of of the promise to come. And I, I would I would probably contend that Rebecca is more more concerned about that promise than the blessing of the stuff. I would agree, um, especially how it plays out in the end. I would agree, but but I think that the issue that we have here is is twofold. One, Isaac by this time knows the promise that the Lord had made, and he's directly going against it because he favors Esau. Um. Rebecca, instead of going to Isaac and saying, no, we, we, this is the promise of the Lord. This is what is to be done. Um, and, and we split this blessing, um, which probably should have been done. Um, she takes matters into her own hands and, and convinces her own child, who he is not innocent. He's old enough to make it up his own mind, convinces her own child to, to participate in this grand, uh, what would you call it? Uh, the grand almost, deception. Yeah, the grand deception of of Isaac, um, and and so they both participate in this so that they can steal the blessing. So we have here a mother who is actively working against one child and against her own husband in favor of the child. So <clears throat> whenever I teach, <laughs> and I have a premarital or even marital in in uh, counseling, and people come in and we talk about children, um, I always tell them. I said, I said. The, the marriage bond comes first, then the children. And I said, if the marriage bond is strong, the children are going to be okay. I said, if you allow the children to interfere with that marriage bond, your children are going to be messed up. And you see that, I, I think in spades, you see that with, with what goes on. Because, because you have Rebecca who allows her favoritism and her love for her child, even over her own love for her husband, mess up the marriage bond, which now brings strife between the, the kids. Yeah, I had not, I, I'll confess I had not thought about the, <clears throat> the uh, excuse me, putting your child over your husband in Rebecca. That is a fascinating insight from, from Genesis of that's exactly what she did. Instead of talking it over with her husband, she didn't trust her husband even. And so now she's going to trick him. She didn't trust God didn't trust her husband. All of these things are... are and, and the beautiful... And, and I'm going to add to that because the beautiful juxtaposition between the two is... And this is this is really kind of... I just was thinking about this. That's how my brain works. Anyway, um, so so Rebecca is is put her love of her child over the, the, the love of her husband. Um, we see the exact opposite happen with Bathsheba when 
when Solomon's uh, ascendancy was threatened, right? Um, Bathsheba doesn't connive and doesn't go through this, you know, we're going to steal it back. She goes directly to David and she talks directly to her husband and she she says, we had we have a promise. You love me, I love you. This was promised not only by you but by the Lord. Do something about it. And and they worked it out so that it would happen so that there wasn't this conflict, right? Mm-hmm. Um and you see that in in 2nd Samuel uh, uh going into 1st Kings uh 1st Kings it's in 1st Kings uh chapter 1. Um, where you see the 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 beautiful section there with Bathsheba coming and talking with David and David taking matters and fixing the problem um, that was happening. You don't see that here with with Rebecca. Rebecca just her love for her child is all consuming and and it's and the, the bad part is she has two kids and it's love for the one and it's so all consuming it it even goes and trumps her marital first call. Um, to her husband and his love and the respect that she do she owed it to him, and so you see a, to- a total disrespect and a breaking of the marriage bond in the sec- in, in, in that idea of the the deceiving of it, um, all for her her hand in trying to force this, which interestingly enough is going to lead to disaster for her, um, and for for Jacob in a way. So so what happens is. He gets the blessing. So essentially he gets the blessing not only for the the promise of the Savior, but technically he gets the blessing for all the stuff too. Well, as it ends up, he doesn't get any of the stuff. I mean, he, Esau gets all the Both stuff. stuff yeah. um, but, but Esau is so angry, he wants to kill his brother. I mean, this is what this result is. So this favoritism that is, 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 is brought in through this um, clash of parents is it leads to to death threats for the siblings. And um, again, we see Rebecca do something um, that I think is horrendous. And it's also horrendous on, on Isaac's part too. She, she goes to Isaac and she says, um, so, so now she finally talks to Isaac. And she goes to Isaac and she says, um, your, your son, Esau's wives, I can't stand them because they're, they're unbelievers and they're horrible. I never want that for my son, for for Jacob. Send him away so that he can get a wife who's actually a believer. And it's like the first time Isaac ever heard, oh, you know what? You're right. I don't approve of those wives that he has. And so she, they send Jacob away, where, where it's to save Jacob's life. That's Rebecca's thought. Also get him a, a God-fearing wife. But the reality of the situation, though, is that that she will never see Jacob again. She's going to die. So, so she'll, she'll die before Jacob comes back. Um, and we, we could talk about Jacob and what happens and how God establishes the promises with him outside of what they tried to connive and do again, God fulfilling and being a graceful, uh, a, a God of, of good and faithful grace and forgiving the, the sins of people. But, but just the, you see maybe this torment in, in Rebecca, um, that that her decisions and the way that she approached her children have now led to her losing her child that she loves and and not being able to see him as she grew older and and would go to to death. Yeah, so the takeaways from Rebecca, uh don't show favoritism, don't uh put your children over your husband. 
uh, redeeming qualities for Rebecca is that eventually she sees the uh, importance of of uh, a mate for their for her child that her mate should be someone that is uh, a be- a believer or someone who knows God and not someone who worships some other gods like the Hittite women around them. Well, I think there's other redeeming qualities in Rebecca. I, I although I do believe the way she went about it is wrong. Um, I think you see Rebecca as a mother who is willing to move heaven and earth for her children. Um, and and that is a wonderful quality for a mother to have. But I, I think her ability to move heaven and earth um, rests in her first call as wife because she can't do that alone. And, and, and she neglected that first call. Um, and when she neglected that first call, it, it prohibited her, her ability to to see really what 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 was going to be best for her children in the long run. Um, now, God comes in and changes that. I understand that. Right. But, yeah. but I, I think it, from a very earthly standpoint, um, you know, when we, when, we, when we deny one vocational call and, and, and put that over another vocational call, um, we end up really hurting ourselves in the long run because it's all, God, God desires that they all work together. Um, so, so the vocational call of being a, being a wife to your husband, um, trumps the vocational call of mother because being a wife to your husband makes you a better mother because you're not alone. You're working on it with, with your spouse, the way God intended it to be. And when you are frustrated, he can step in. And when he is frustrated, you can step in. And when, when something needs to happen, you're not the only one doing all the lifting. Um, you lift together. And, and so the desire for a mother, and she has a wonderful desire to give heaven and earth to her child. And I think that is a beautiful thing. We know that Jacob is a believer. Out of all the problems that he has, Jacob is a believer. And with the amount of time he spent with his mother, I'm pretty sure it came from her. You know? Um, and, and the fact that, and, and, and just to be, just, you know, just to, to lead into this just a little bit, Jacob treats women very well, at least his wives. Uh, there's a lot of things I can say bad about Jacob, but he treats women very well. Um, he does not desire to discredit them. He does not desire to to chastise them. Uh, he doesn't desire Isaac, to shun them. Isaac does too. Oh, but you're talking Jacob. Jacob. We're we're moving on. No, I'm 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 not yet. I'm just saying oh, that okay. that this is a testament to Re, uh, to Rebecca, a testament to Rebecca as a mother, that she instilled in in Jacob, um, a respect for women. And I think that you see that in Jacob. There's a lot of other things you can say wrong about him, but he does have a respect for them. Okay. All right, let's move on then to the next one, which is my first one, which is Leah. And what I wanted to talk about with Leah, uh, Leah is first found in Genesis 29, where Jacob, he's uh, working for his uncle Laban up in Paran Aram, and uh, he sees Rachel. And for some reason, there is a distinction between Rachel and Leah. Leah has... Uh, what the Bible says, weak eyes, so maybe smaller-looking eyes than Rachel does. And Jacob loves Rachel, wants to, uh, doesn't have anything to offer, so he works for seven years for Rachel. And uh, But uh, Laban, his uncle, plays a trick on him, so uh, Jacob is getting a little bit of his uh, deception thrown back at him and uh, deceives him, gives him Leah instead. And uh, so uh, Jacob works for another seven years, 
uh, to get Rachel. So now he has two wives, uh, two sisters, and th this is where uh, the sisters start competing with one another for Jacob's affection, and they use that through their children. And uh, Will, as we were talking about this, I I was going I took up Leah because of what uh, Will was saying last week when we were uh, talking about the show for today. And the interesting thing is. With Leah, there's not a whole lot we can we have about her. Most of her um, involvement in the scriptures has to do with her bearing of her sons and the names that she gives her sons. And uh, Will brought up last week as we were getting ready for the show how this interesting progression on the names of his sons. So let me just go through some of those names that Leah has, the, the sons that she has, and uh, the thinking behind them. So if you wanted to follow along, uh, you could go with me in... Uh, Genesis chapter 29. And the first son that she has is Reuben. And uh, so let's read from Genesis 29. Let me get there. Oh boy, where am I? It's verse 6. Yep, yeah, here we go. Uh, in verse, um, what verse is that? 32. 30, 32. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. And Reuben, it means, uh, behold, a son. And she says, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. So here the, the competition between Leah and Rachel has begun, where she is uh, pining for Jacob's affection. And, uh, um, but the interesting thing is that she says, the Lord has seen my misery. So she is someone who believes in the God, of the covenant God, the Yahweh God, the God of, of free and faithful grace. and uh, But there is a negative to that, is that she is only having a child just for her husband's sake. So here the, the child, here we have the opposite of Rebecca. Rebecca. Rebecca loves her children more than her husband, and Leah loves her husband more than her children. She's just having kids just for uh, her husband's sake. Then she has another child, uh, Simeon, and Simeon means... Um, um, oh, here, let me read from verse 34. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will be attracted to me because I have born... Oh, I'm sorry, that was... Uh, 33 is... 33. Yep. Uh, because the Lord heard that I was not loved, uh, she gave me. he gave me this one, so he named him Simeon. So Simeon is number two. Uh, the Lord heard uh, that I am not loved. So again, we have this faith in the Lord, in the, in the God of free and faithful grace, but still the uh, perception of, or still the problem of wanting her husband's affection and not um, putting her husband over her own child. Her third child that she had, which is in verse 34, he says, now at least, at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. Levi means joined. So she's still pining for her husband's affection even after three sons. And, uh, um, move on to number four, Judah. This is uh, the where the Savior would come from, from Judah. And her name for him, Judah, uh, the passage for him, verse 35, this time I will praise the Lord, so she named him Judah, and uh, Judah means praise. And, and and I would just add to this that, um, you know, we talked about the progression, and, and I think there's a beautiful progression that you see with, with the sons of, of uh, Leah. But one of the things that, that you see in that progression is is it's first focused husband, husband, and then it's Lord, Lord, right? Um, in fact, she's going to have another child, too. Um, she's going to have a, a daughter. 
and and Dinah uh, is going to be uh, meaning justice that that God has given her justice, which is recognizing this blessing of of parenthood. Um, something interesting about Leah and her children. Um, notice two of the children bear a very important, and it's the last two chi- the last two male children who who are really named after her focus turns more towards the Lord that play a huge part in the history of God's people. Correct. Yeah, Levi becomes this is where all the high priests come from, is from the tribe of Levi. Uh, what a, a fascinating thing that we see the Lord blessing Leah, even though uh, she is a sinful person, uh, focusing more on her husband than on her on her kids, and but the Lord still blesses it. Well, and and I so so I would say here take um let's let's talk about a takeaway for for uh for Leah and and so my understanding that the, as you brought up the malady or the sin that we we see is her desire for her husband more than than um, the desire for being a wife and a mother. Um, so, so what's the takeaway? So what, what's your thought? Um, I think Leah just is another example of uh, the Lord is gracious. The people that we have in the Bible, if, if I was writing the Bible, the history of, of the Old Testament, if I was in control of things, I would have, you know, your, you would have 12 sons. You would, you would uh, name them like the seven dwarves. You know, they're all, they all have good qualities in them. This one's except known for, for grumpy. This, except for grumpy, right? <laughs> they all have all these different qualities, and they're all good, right? But these 12 sons aren't all good. Uh, their mother isn't perfect either. And here is our God who doesn't, uh, who comes and gets his hands dirty in the sin, sinful affairs of man, who wants to save these people that are sinful. He chooses uh, the nation of Israel purely by his grace. It has nothing to do with their uh, moral qualities or their uh, obedience to to him or to each other, uh, you know, loving each other. This is purely God's grace that they are uh, part of, of God's promise and part of the line of the Savior. Yeah, and, and I think you have... Um... I, like I said, you know, one of the things that that every mother wrestles with is her calling to be wife, um, and and what does that mean, and how does that look, and and you see in Leah this desire to fix her marriage, um, or to fix what she feels is broken in her marriage by doing her duty of 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 bearing children, um, and and anybody would say, well, that's not why you should have children, but let's face it, that I mean. Many, many women today, and I'm, I'm not trying to chastise, but I'm just saying many, many women today feel um, I'm going to hang on to this guy. I'll, I got to hang on to this guy, so I'll have a kid, and that'll, that'll fix it, and he'll stay. Uh, I'm sorry. Children are a blessing of the Lord, but they're a blessing of a, of a, of a union of, of a husband and wife that uh, should be a blessing of a union of a husband and wife who, who truly take serious their commitment to each other um, but also now the commitment to raising together this child as parent, um, and so I, I think you 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 see the shift in Leah as the children as she has children. You see the shift, um, and, and I would have to say that that um, after Rebecca, I mean Rebecca's going to pass or uh, Rachel's going to pass away before Leah, um, but but throughout the time, you know, she Leah is always I want my husband to love me. I want my husband to love me. And I think if you if you go through the entire story of Jacob, 
you see a deeper connection between Jacob and Leah than you ever do be, between Jacob and Rachel. I, I think at, and as the, the whole thing progresses, um, you see that there's this, it's maybe not the, the hot and heavy love that, that Jacob has for Rachel, but it's a, it is a love of, of mutual respect and mutual um, comfort that is between Jacob and Leah. All right, that's Leah. Let's move on to the next one. My second one is Naomi. Uh, Naomi is found in the book of Ruth. Uh, what I really like, uh, let's just tell the story of Naomi. First of all, Naomi is uh, from Judah, and she has a husband. Uh, and she and her husband are living in the time of Judah during the time of the judges. So the book of Ruth is really a shining example of God's faithfulness in the midst of a really, really bad time spiritually and morally. In the time of the judges is what we would we would say is the time when everyone did, or what the Bible says, uh, the time that everyone did as they saw fit. So it's the swirling toilet. The swirling toilet, yeah, everything. <laughs> so what Will means by the swirling toilet is uh, the book of Judges. You have God's people; uh, they would stray from Him. Then God would allow some sort of discipline to happen. Maybe it's a, a, a famine, or maybe that's a. a an enemy coming and attacking them and oppressing them. And then the, the children of Israel would crawl up for help. And then God would send a judge that would rescue God's people. And then things would be fine for a while. And then the people would abandon God. And then God would send some sort of discipline on them. And then they would cry out and it, it goes around in a circle, but it, it's not going upward in an upward direction. It is going downward in a downward direction. People are, uh, it is not a good time, but Ruth is, the exact opposite. It's the light in the dark place. It is the the probably I don't I don't know, but my opinion is the reason why Ruth isn't a part of Judges is because it is such a bright light in comparison to the Judges. So anyway, it's a it's a bad time. So Naomi and her husband and her two sons are living in Bethlehem. There's a famine, so they have to go to the land of Moab, um, and there her husband her sons find. Uh, wives, and Ruth is one of them, which is what the name of Ruth, where that book comes from. But then the tragedy happens. While they are over there, uh, both Naomi's husband and Naomi's two sons die. And in a Middle Eastern culture, uh, that is devastating for a widow to not have any means of support, no attachment to the land. What's going to happen to her? Who's going to take care of her? Uh, it's it's some it's a sad time. So then, while they are over there in Moab, uh, she hears that the Lord it, uh, the the uh, the Lord has heard the cries of his people, and so she heads back to Bethlehem. And these two daughters-in-law want to go along with her. And uh, I am just fascinated on Naomi's. Uh, there's a tension between Naomi's love of her Lord and also. The, the sadness of when it seems like the Lord is working against her. She actually admits it twice in the book of Ruth where it seems like the Lord's hand was against her. The Lord has afflicted me. But at the same time, she's still holding on to him, which is, uh, to me, is a great takeaway for moms. There are so many times when moms just feel like everything's working against them and uh, it doesn't seem like anything's going their way. They can't catch a break but at the same time, they're holding on to the Lord and his promises. And uh, Naomi is the same way. So uh, anyway, I have them back in Moab heading back. She tells 
tells her two daughters-in-law, please go back to your own land and your own people. Uh, you'll be taken care of. I can just imagine a mom trying, I can't take care of myself, much less two other women. Um, perhaps she's afraid because she knows of the times that they'll be taken advantage of in uh, among her own people. So she wants to send them away. Orpa does go, but Naomi does. Begrudgingly. Begrudgingly, yes, right. Uh, and Ruth uh, clings to her, and that's a, a beautiful section on Ruth, which is not my focus. I'm focusing on Naomi. So Naomi comes back to the land of Bethlehem with Ruth, and Ruth has that beautiful confession, and where you go, I will go, where you stay, I will stay, your God will be my God. That's um, a that, beautiful confession of faith on Ruth's part. Can, can I just jump in? Because that, that confession flows from the evangelical spirit of Naomi. Um, you had said it so beautifully before that even in her distress, she clung to the promises of her God and, and, and the truth of, of, of what her Lord had said. And that is that was something that, that shone through in her life that her, her um, daughter-in-laws saw and understood and loved. Yeah, we have no idea um, the impact of Elimelech, that's Naomi's husband, on their lives. But yeah, there is definitely, uh, since the fact that Elimelech is gone and they're so clinging to Naomi so much, uh, that, that seems to me that there is some sort of motherly connection where she is uh, sharing her faith with her daughters and her daughters are responding well to that. So Naomi and Ruth uh, come back to Bethlehem. Everyone's wondering what's going on and Naomi explains and says, you know, don't call me Naomi anymore call me Mara, which means bitter. So there's that, again, there is this tension between feeling that she is abandoned by God and yet also holding on to his promises. So they're back in the land of Bethlehem. She doesn't have any land. She doesn't have any income. They're left to be beggars to uh, um, uh, get what they can get. It happens to be harvest time. So Ruth goes out and uh, works behind all of the other workers getting whatever they left behind. And she comes back, and she just so happens the Lord's hand has Ruth working in the field of Boaz. And Ruth has this uh, beautiful uh, way of how Boaz ran his farm and his operation, beginning each day saying, the Lord bless you. And everyone responds saying, the Lord bless you. Um, and uh, she he notices Ruth right away for whatever reason, uh, his workers say not only is she um, where she comes from, but they uh, admire her worth ethic, that she is uh, uh, hardly ever takes any breaks and is, is working hard. And uh, so anyway, uh, Boaz shows favor to Ruth. Ruth goes back to Naomi, and she has a huge uh, um, um, take-in for the day uh, over an ipa of flour, of ipa of, of uh, wheat, which would make would provide for both Ruth and Naomi, and Naomi uh, hears, you know, who is this guy that did this? And and Ruth tells her who the guy was, and then we have Naomi saying, "The Lord bless him." So again, that tension between uh, this is the Lord providing and the God who seems like He's against him. Um, and then the uh, the neat thing is the advice that she gives to Ruth. In, in, in Ruth's uh, courting of Boaz. Let's, to me, as I'm reading this, I'm saying, Naomi knows what a godly man is like. She doesn't know anything about Boaz, but she can kind of predict what Boaz is going to do because she knows what a godly man is. So to me, it, that tells me Elimelech probably was a godly man. 
Sure. And so now here, Naomi in her in her role as a mother can say, "This is this kind of guy is going to do this kind of thing. Uh, he's gonna he's gonna advocate for you. He's gonna do this and that. So here here's what you do, Ruth." And, and I think just focus on that just enough because I think there's something near a takeaway for for modern parents, modern mothers. That not only to say this is what a godly man will do, this is what a godly how a godly man will act, but this is how you pursue a godly man. Yes, right. Um, because I think that's drastically different than what our young ladies are learning today. I I, I have to say it is they need godly mothers to say. Okay, a godly man is not going to treat you like a piece of meat. A godly man isn't going to try to do get into your pants or however you want it. A godly man is going to seek first and foremost your preservation. And here is how you react to that because that's what you want. Right. Yeah, that is such an excellent point. So Naomi has a lot of neat things for moms, a lot of takeaways, just that the tension uh, between uh, holding on to God and his promises and also the sadness when it seems like God isn't working that way. And also her, um, her, I was trying, trying to sum up what you just said, just the idea of she knows what a godly man is and is, is willing to give that advice and knows and has the confidence that that's going to work. Right. Well, um, yeah, you know, Naomi, a wonderful, wonderful mother. We, so we've had so far in our, in our, our discussion, we've had, had, you know, a couple of ladies who had some good and bad qualities, right? Sarah and, and Rebecca. We had Naomi, who's got some major good qualities. So we see really good motherly advice here. Um, very, very briefly in our discussion, I want to bring up um, one who is not so good, uh, and that is Jezebel. Um, and, and notice in history, you never name your child Jezebel. <laughs> um, and there is a reason for that. Uh, you can find her story in 1 Kings 16 through 21. And and really, in that whole entire section of 1 Kings 16 through 21, we don't have much on Jezebel being a mother. So you're probably wondering why are we talking about Jezebel as a mother? Because she was a mother. She had two kids. One, um, was it Jehoram? Oh, who became king of Israel. And uh, um, if I remember correctly, and then she also had Athliah, which is a daughter. And Athliah does marry the king of the south, who is Jehoram, I think, in the south um, at that time. And so, um, and what we can, and, and the reason I bring this up for, for Jezebel is, is quite simply this. What we can see from Jezebel as a mother we get from how her daughter acts as a person and her daughter acts like a horrible person. Um, well, Jezebel was a horrible person to begin with. She was, she brought her, her gods with her, um, her, her pagan worship. And she introduced, um, extreme pagan worship, uh, to the Northern tribes. She controlled her husband, Ahab, um, I mean, pretty much Ahab was a wimp anyway, but she, she, uh, Jezebel ruled with an iron fist. Um, and, and, um, you see the tendency to grab for power and to rule seen in Athaliah, her daughter, who eventually will go down to the South, marry into the family there, has children. When her son dies, um, after a very, very short reign, she decides this is her opportunity to grab for power. This is Athaliah. And she goes and she, she decides to kill all of her grandchildren. 
and and anybody who could have a a say to come to the throne so that she could take power and she does in fact she is the only listed queen um to rule un, uncontested for 6 years um in the southern kingdom um because she goes and grabs for power now the thing that i find interesting in that is is her her pagan worship which she brought from her mother um and started to infest down in into god's people um in in judah um but you see this this lack of love for her children um which i could only say would probably be something that jezebel taught her that that prestige power and glory for yourself was the only thing that was desired and I think this is uh, this is the 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 maybe the takeaway if you're going to go up for a takeaway very briefly on Jezebel, because Jezebel is I would say a bad person and a bad mother, and and her ch- her children were bad people and bad parents, um, Athliah especially, and I would say the takeaway between all of that is is simply um, when we start treating our marriages as power plays. And when we start treating our, our, our call as parents or mothers, that your call as motherhood as, as a power play, this is a bad position to be in. That that I I'm I'm having children so that I have someone to rule over, or or I'm having children so I gain in prestige. There is a I think this is a a very slippery slope that that I think we see in scriptures that this doesn't bode well. That would that would be my take on on Jezebel very very briefly. Like I said, not a lot of stuff taught to her about about motherhood, but you can see sometimes you can see the mother right. You can see the the parents and the upbringing in the children that they leave behind. Yeah, we do leave a legacy, whether we're intentionally doing that legacy or not. Um, and uh, I think we've been touching on that as well. That your legacy as a mom isn't necessarily just what you do as a mom, but your relationship to your Lord, your relationship to your husband, the way that you carry yourself as an individual, all of these things are passed on to your children for good or for ill. And as we look at moms so far, we've seen God's grace in all of this, uh, that he has shown love, given them opportunities. uh, In the case of Sarah, um, turning things around in the end, and in the case of Rebecca, still... um, fulfilling God's promises to her. The last one on my list is Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. Usually Mary is the one where Lutherans are a little skittish talking about Mary just because she is given so much focus in among the Roman Catholic Church where they uh, venerate her and put her in such a high position as the mother of Jesus that Lutherans sometimes just compensate and say, well, uh, uh, the, the Roman Catholics are giving her so much attention, we're not going to give her any attention whatsoever. We're going to use every opportunity we can to put her down a little bit uh, because the Roman Catholics treat her so well. But I wanted to talk about Mary just because there are some, the good and bad for Mary. We think of the good things when uh, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and announces to her that she's going to have a, a, a son and be a savior and how she has that beautiful song, the, the Magnificat, My Spirit Rejoices in God, My Savior. I know our, our synod put out a really neat video called My Son, My Savior. Here's my plug for that. It's a, it's a really, I think it's a really good uh, movie that balances the good and the bad of Mary and also sees how 
the transition that Mary undergoes throughout her um, her task of mothering Jesus, how she moves from someone who is raising uh, the Son of God, the Messiah, and how she uh, embraces that role and how she cherishes that role. We think of the Bible passage that uh, we memorize it for every Christmas, that she took all these things and pondered them in her heart, even when she went to Simeon and had Simeon say, uh, that your her that her son would cause the rising and falling of many in Israel, and a sword will pierce your heart too. Just just taking all of this stuff in, as she uh, cherishes her role as a mom and she raises him, but it, it is not without incident. She didn't have the easiest job in the universe. She had a son who, when he was thirteen, would stay behind in Jerusalem, and she she lost him. Uh, just imagine. I know moms have the panic when they lose their child in the in the uh, supermarket, but just imagine. Losing the Savior. You know, God gave me the Savior, and I lost him. Uh, now what's going to happen to me? Uh, the, the panic that sets in when uh, they discover that he has not, he's not with them. And again, as you look over that section when uh, Jesus and uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus go to, go to Jerusalem, the, the, the families traveled together, maybe the, the parents traveled together, the kids traveled together, they're all... It, it what the fact that they left him there in 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 Jerusalem isn't necessarily that bad of a it's not a, a huge example of neglect culturally they expected Jesus to be with the uh, the boys yeah there there should be um they should have made sure that he was with them but it it's not as bad as it appears but i think i think you see in her comment that she she you have this sinful part of mary um, she's a good mother. I'm not I'm not denying that. But you have the sinful part of Mary that she does not understand Jesus, um, because she she approaches him and she says, "Why have you done this to your father and me?" Well, my father is in this house. That's why I'm doing this. Right. Um, she she doesn't quite understand from the from the lips of a 12 year old boy. Um, she 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 misappropriates, and we're gonna see that again in her life when when she doesn't understand the ministry of Christ. Right. Yeah. When she wants to take charge of him because she feels that he is uh he's out of his mind, and Jesus says, uh, "Where here are my whoever listens to me is my mother and my brother." So she feels like she has still responsibility over him and his ministry, but he's a, he's a grown man now, and now he knows uh, her job, her task as a mom has finished. I think there's something to be said about Mary, um, just in the sense of of some of the wonderfulness of Mary. You had mentioned it briefly, how she treasured up all these things in her heart. Um, throughout the story of Luke, um, and 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 we get the most of Mary in in, in the Gospel of Luke. Um, you see Mary standing before the cross, and you see the giving of of um, to Mary a, a a different son, a godly son um, in John, and you wonder why why do, are those words recorded for us, right? Other than they are the words of Christ from the cross, but I think the Spirit um, um, gives us that is 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 not only that there is a um, a care for John that he now has the care of of a godly woman um, and in a mother, but also that John now cares for um, Jesus' mother, and there's a respect that Jesus has that he knows his mother. Um, is not only a believer, but is one who needs to be cared for. Um, and there's this, there's this love between a, a son and a, fa- a son and a mother there. Yeah, I, I really do admire Mary for being there at the cross uh, and watching it. I know in uh, Mel Gibson's uh, The Passion of the Christ, they make Mary sound like she's like suffering alongside her 
alongside Jesus and and the the way that he he does the shots you you see Jesus suffering and then you see a, a picture of Mary and it's almost as if Mary in her torment seeing her son uh, suffering like that, that's even worse than what Jesus is undergoing that I don't appreciate that but I do appreciate the fact that she was actually standing there uh, watching him uh, she uh, had those words of Simeon the sword will pierce her heart and she was not afraid to have that sword pierce her own heart. Interesting, and I don't. I don't think that this is. I mean, this isn't scriptural. But there was. A, I watched on HBO. It was uh, the story of of Jesus. Um, it was on. It came up during Easter. Anyway, um, as I was watching it, one of the things that they had had in there is is Mary's role after the crucifixion. In her mourning, she kept saying, "But he promised." But he promised, but he, and I, I don't know if that's necessarily scriptural, but, but how interesting would that be that, that we have, I mean, where did Luke, I mean, when we, when we turn to, to the pages of Luke and we read Luke, where did Luke get his gospel accounting? Well, we have the, the stories of all these women in the book of Luke because, because that's where he got them from as he's writing them, he's hearing them from these women. Um, and and there is an importance there as as he continues to go through that that the this promise carries along. Mary, Mary, maybe it was Mary who who carried that promise along. Maybe it was Mary Magdalene who carried that promise along. But we still see this love of a of a mother who is present during that time period um, and still there, even though she fades from the prominence. Yeah, she does definitely fade because the last time she's mentioned is in Acts chapter one, right when right when Peter takes up the the mantle of the leader of the the Christian church. Mary isn't there saying, "Oh wait, no, that's me." You know? Right. Uh, it's uh, she. She does fade from the background after that. So she does have. And we we skipped over the the wedding at Cana. Uh, do whatever he tells you. I really. That's the one thing I really appreciate about her. When even when Jesus says to her, "Woman, my time has not yet come," she tells to the servants, "Do whatever he tells you." Just a, a matter of faith. Whatever he says, if he says, "Don't do anything," do that. If he says, "Go do something," go do that. Whatever it is, she trusts that he is in control and that he knows what he's doing. So she's got that throughout her. And then you know later on, she's got the what we mentioned before about trying to take charge of him, thinking that he's gone out of his mind. Mark Mark three tell, tells us that, and Mark twelve. Uh, tells us that, but at the, that's a, the same tension that every every believer has in their role of vocation that God has given us is uh, these are things I, I I think should happen, and the Lord saying nope that should happen this way, and the tension of holding on to God's word and then also asserting yourself thinking you know better than what God says in His word we we all do that as as Christians we sometimes we do that as uh, I can I can imagine mothers would would do that as well, and I agree. Um... I, I guess as we come, because you've hit all yours, and I've had all my my subjects here. Um, I, I, if you've noticed and have been keeping count, we've only tackled six, um, and and that was a reason because um, you know God deals in sevens; those are the the number of completeness, and it's 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 and we rest on that. And I, and I would like to send home our listeners with with maybe a a task for them as they have an opportunity to think about their mothers and and you brought it up in the show and I want to come back around to that as as I give this encouragement. You had mentioned and so beautifully that the job of a mother is not just to to love their kids to the exclusion of everything, but it is how they live their life and how they live their vocation as wife and how they live their vocation as mother and how they live their vocation as person. 
and and the legacy they leave instilled in their child to to mimic that in their life um and i and i think that's the encouragement i'd like to leave with with our listeners is to think back about the role model their mother's left for them or the role model their mother is living for them and or the, someone who was like a mother to them right and and the encouragement if your mother is still alive to encourage them in continuing to live that role um i don't know your mother dave and you don't know my mother and maybe you'll say, well, maybe I have questions about my mother. But I can tell you, but from knowing you, you have a wonderful mother. Um, the way you treat your wife and the way you treat your children um, bleeds from that. I would also say the same about your father, um, but we're not. this is Mother's Day, not Father's right, Day. Right. Um, so I, I can say that. Um, and and, and, I, and I hope people would see that in me too, that the way I treat my wife comes from the way that that I value what my mother has instilled in me and, and the things that she has instilled in me. Um, and, and so my challenge to the people uh, today as we approach Mother's Day is, is not to just give a, a, an empty platitude and say, oh, happy Mother's Day, thank you, but to really say, you know what, it, it, everything that you do, the, the way that you interact with your husband, the way you live your life, the the value you place on things all are a part of your motherhood and, and what you give to your children. Um, and, and as you live that vocation, because that is an all encompassing vocation. I, that those are my final thoughts. What do you have to, to lead us out? Uh, my final thoughts is I, uh, I really appreciated going through the Bible of the biblical mothers just to see how the challenge of what it, what it is to be a mom. Cause I'm not a mom. And, but it also, I, I will echo your challenge for, our dear listeners, to look at your moms and appreciate uh, those moms that are or people that are like your moms in your lives and to see how uh, God can bless you through the vocation of motherhood. 